Um, I want you to think about an occasion where um, you decided that you were going to try to um, get fit or lose weight or something like that. Um, generally, that involves, to some degree or another, some sort of like self-inflicted torture um, physically or will, in your willpower with what you are going to eat. Now, if you're anything like me, I have generally good intentions when it comes to that and usually a good start. I start really well. Um, I come out of the blocks blazing and I'm super disciplined with not eating certain food or doing certain activities or whatever it might be. And for me, it's probably um, about the two-hour mark. No, sorry, not the two-hour mark. Probably about the two-week mark. Two weeks in, that's when sort of the reality of um, that this is going to take a little bit more effort, especially as you get older, um, a little bit more staying power to stay disciplined in that. And I start experiencing cravings. So I want you to think about a moment in your life where that's occurred for you. Um, some type of fitness program, some type of diet, something that you've been sort of battling through and you get cravings. So we're going to do a show of hands for a moment and um, see if we can just get some broad categories here. Hands high if your cravings are something sweet. Oh, yeah. Someone's a bang. <laughs> All right. Sweet. Something sweet. Hands up again. All right. Yeah. Actually, I thought that might have been more. I thought that might have been more. Sweet is often. Okay. So the other category then is stand hands up if your cravings are savory. <laughs> All right, now thinking about those categories for a moment, we've got sweet, we've got savoury. Let's go back to the people that put their hand up first. Sweet cravers. All right, sweet cravers. Um, let's go to our guilty number one thing. All right, so let's go with the obvious one first. Hands up if it's. Like, there's, there's no judgment here. No one's. Right, we don't have the wide-angle camera on and so that we can go back later and pinpoint exactly the people that were... Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to chocolate in a minute. Let's start with ice cream. Ice cream? You're craving for ice cream? There's a few of it. Yeah, a few people. That moment where you just think, you know what, I'm going to blow this whole diet and I'm going to do it with a four-tub ice cream. Yeah. Um, ice cream. All right. Look, we heard chocolate. Chocolate. Where's our craving for chocolate? Yeah, there they are. Very good. Um, out of interest, say, dark chocolate? Light milk chocolate? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I heard that dark chocolate's actually good for you, so let's go for that. Um, just your good old-fashioned corner store lolly bag. Who's, yes. There you go. All right. Mars bar. Yeah, a few of us, all right. Let's jump to savoury for a moment. Maybe I didn't call out your sweet. I'm very sorry. I didn't mean to disrespect you. Diabetics. Jelly beans. Jelly beans. But yeah, yeah, and you just carry extra insulin with the, that day. Um, let's go to savoury for a moment. Savoury. Uh, packet of barbecue chips. 
Oh, yeah, a couple. Okay, you've got to be more I'm specific. I'm with my brethren here, all right? Um, what about hot chips from the shop? Salt on it or something? Yes. Some people are putting theirs up for sweet and for savoury. We have a special prayer meeting for you later on. Um, all right, let's go with sausage roll. Sausage roll from the bakery, yeah, or a pie, you know, from the bakery, something like that, yeah. I tell you the thing that I crave most often when I'm trying to be really dedicated with my food is just a nice slice of white bread. Like just, especially fresh cooked white bread. Um, when Kath and I were first married and we moved to Tasmania, um, these things were all the rage 20-something years ago. Uh, in Tassie, got down there and we met these people and eventually had to cut ties with them. They were just toxic people. Um, they introduced us to a bread maker. And I reckon I put on like five kilos in three seconds. Um, bread makers, you think, this is awesome. Chuck the ingredients in and get it going the night before. You'd wake up in the morning with the smell of freshly cooked bread. Just, oh, man. All right, I want to finish church up right now. Let's go. Um, bakery. We'll find a bakery that's open. Fresh bread, bit of golden syrup. I'm a Queensland boy. Golden syrup on fresh bread. Um, couldn't get much better. Um, I take comfort in the fact that as I read through the story of the Old Testament in particular and the New Testament, um, I'm, I just hold myself to the fact that I must be fairly close to the Lord because I love bread so much. Um, or it could be a, a huge downfall for me. Um, I want to I trace a story that bread plays a significant part of, and it starts back in the book of Exodus. So if you grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, um, and we're going to trace through a, um, the beginning of a story and the foundations of something that is going to carry all the way through the narrative of the Bible... Um, and help us see something significant, I, I hope, this morning. So let's just set some context for a moment, and we're going to pick up the story of Israel. We've heard a bit about um, Israel this morning already. Israel were in a position where they were in slavery, and they were in slavery in the nation of Egypt, and they were, they were a slave nation. They lived there. They were given land to live in. Um, they could farm themselves to a certain degree if they had the time, but in general, they were the labour force for the Egyptian powerhouse. Um, so think of all the great construction that took place through the, um, the, the Egyptian sort of eras, and a lot of that happens on the back of slave nations, among which Israel was one of them. And so they were there for 400 years. 400 years in slavery as a nation and um, working for the Egyptians. Of course, they didn't want to be in that situation. They were calling out to God, crying out for salvation, and eventually God says, I've, I've heard your prayers. I've, I've heard your suffering. I've seen it. And he raises up Moses, and Moses, um, under God's direction, leads them back towards the promised land. So you got that picture in your mind? Um, 
What occurs on this journey, though, are a series of obstacles, a series of setbacks for the nation of Israel as they travel back to the promised land out of slavery. One of the things was food. You might have been thinking about big ones like the Red Sea, right? Big obstacle to get past. Um, of course that was. It wasn't a big obstacle for God. He just got Moses to wave his stick around and the water opened up and he said, there it is, there's the pathway, go through. Um, there, are, there are a bunch of obstacles on that journey. One of them was food. In fact, it became the recurring obstacle all the way through it. If you read through the, the, um, the narrative from Genesis and Exodus and onwards, you read how often that the Israelite people began to grumble and uh, they began to complain. They've been liberated from slavery. They're being sent to the land that God had promised them and they whinged and complained and moaned and bellyached the entire time. In fact, there are a few occasions where they turned around to Moses and said, Moses, we've got no onions here. They're concerned about onions. We, we want to flavour our food a little bit better. At least we had onions in Egypt. Now get that, 400 years slave labour. And they say, we had onions though. <laughs> like our food was not too bad. Maybe the slave labour thing would be okay. In fact, at one stage they said, let's, let's go back. Moses, let's take it. Let's just go back. We had onions there, all right? We had leeks there. We had herbs there. We had things to flavour our food. They were hungry. Now, of course, it would have been hard getting enough food to, to serve that many people for 40 years wandering in a desert. And there were many occasions where they were um, physically, they had no food left. They were wondering where that they would get their food from. How would they survive? And they, of course, complained. So God gives them something. All right? God gives them something miraculously in the desert. And that's where we're going to pick up this story. So Exodus chapter 16, and we're going to read together. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. Exodus 16. I'm going to read from verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses. I've heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all over the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. 
This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual. Now, let me just explain. A quart is a measure of volume. Two quarts equals 1.5 litres. So think of one and a half litres. He says you can each take one and a half litres per individual according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. Verse 17, so the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some gathered a little. When they measured it by quarts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. They gathered it every morning. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece, three litres each. And all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He told them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So they set it aside until morning as Moses commanded. And it didn't stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find any on the field. For six days you'll gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet, on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. Stay in chapter 16 and go all the way down to verse 31. It says, The house of Israel named the substance manna. It resembled coriander seed, was white, and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take two quarts of it, and they're to be preserved throughout your generation, so that you may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses told Aaron, take a container and put in two quarts of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be preserved through your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron placed it before the testimony to be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they reached the border of the land of Canaan. Now, go and find the book of Numbers. Just a little bit further along in your Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Right. Numbers chapter 11, verse 8. The people walked around. This is describing what they did. The people walked around and gathered it. They ground it on a pair of grinding stones or crushed it in a mortar. They boiled it in a cooking pot and shaped it into cakes and it tasted like a pastry cooked with the finest oil. Over to the book of Joshua. 
Joshua. Now, Joshua describes what occurred after the 40 years. Moses has now died. Joshua is leading the people and he's about to lead them into the promised land. Joshua chapter 5, verse 12. And the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased. Since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. I want to make just a couple of observations about this. A, eating croissants every morning. I reckon that'd be not bad. Um, I crave that sort of thing often. But God supplied what the people needed. In their need, even though they're a bunch of complainers, a bunch of whingers, God still said, yeah, you need, you need to be sustained physically. You need meat, you need bread. He sent them quail and he sent them manna. Um, in fact, the, the word manna is really a Hebrew word, which means, what is it? Um, that's what the people said, right? They came out, they saw like, what looked like frost all over the ground, and they all looked at each other and said, what is it? The word that they said that with in the Hebrew language is manna. manna. And so they just continued to call it for 40 years. We don't, we don't really know what this stuff is or where it comes from, but God just keeps sending it. Um, it's called, what is it? Um, that, that's what they called it. God supplied them something. They didn't know really what they were needed even, even really what it was. But God just kept on supplying it for them. Um, so the first thing I want you to take out of this is the fact that in our need, God was showing the Israelites, and I think he showed it for us in how he's recorded it. In our need, God supplies what is required. Okay? He is the, the Hebrew um, way of naming. God has lots of names. One only, one true name, but there are lots of names which describe attributes of him. One of them, quite famously in, in recent times, because someone wrote a song about it, is called Jehovah Jireh, right? My provider. And that's what God was showing his people. It's what he shows us, even in a story like this. Of course, when... When Jesus spoke to the crowds, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God was able to, to riff off his own provision in that sense. He was able to take his own act of a miracle and later on in time say, but listen, you need much more than just bread every day. I mean, Jesus asked us to even pray like that the Lord's Prayer, right? Give us today our daily bread. May very well have been, a, for an Israelite, for a Jewish person that heard Jesus teaching that, one of the things that would have come to mind, our daily bread, our daily bread, is what happened. For 40 years, God showed up every morning. Here's your daily bread. All right? God is our provider. God is the one who sees us in our need and says, I understand what you need. We can grow awfully concerned about our daily needs, don't we? And for good measure, we live in a world with high costs. Um, the sort of life where we're sort of trying to approach and go, what, what, have we, what do we have? What are we able to 
gain? What do we need? Jesus, of course, told his disciples, hey, don't worry about all of those things. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be what? Added to you, right? There's a sense where our brother Rolf this morning, thank you so much, mate, for, hey, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I love that encouragement. Just fix your eyes on Jesus. And of course, the skeptical part of us just says, well, you know, you've got to work. You've got to eat. You've got to... We can't just all sit around like monks every day looking at Jesus. I don't think that's what that verse is talking about. But even then, Jesus says, hey, seek first the kingdom of God. Fix your eyes on me. And there is a God who is a provider. He'll add these things. He'll bring what's required. Maybe not what we think is required. Maybe what we desire all the time, but certainly what is needed. The other thing that I think I wanted to bring out from just this part of the Old Testament story is the fact that God often just provides what is needed for the day. All right? He made it very specific to the people. Go out and collect one and a half litres per person. Go out and just get what is required for you to eat for that day. God is in the business of providing what we need for the next step. And that annoys me sometimes, I have to be honest. Maybe it does you. I'm the sort of person that kind of wants to know what the whole plan is. All right? I like the fact that you are a lamp unto my feet. Can it please show me more than just the next step? I like the fact that you will supply what I need for today, but I wouldn't mind knowing what I need and for you to supply that. I don't mind stockpiling that a little bit. I'm a sort of a planner a little bit. I like to stockpile things. I like to, uh, that's for a rainy day type of situation. But it's interesting, isn't it, that when God provided the bread, the manna for the people, he gave it to them. It spread out on the ground. He said, just go out and get what you need for today. And they said, yes. And then they took three litres worth. Probably the people a bit like me. I would have been one of the people when the bell rang and said, that's enough for today, everyone come home. I would have been just, just a couple of minutes more. I'll get a little bit more here. You never know. And then, of course, the people who did that, maybe they're just trying to save themselves a trip tomorrow. I'll just go and collect every second day. And, and then I won't have to get up early in the morning because I like my sleep in. And I won't have to collect tomorrow. I'll take twice as much today and just work every second day. And whatever it was that they'd gathered and put into their jars, ready for the next day, they opened it up and it was maggot-ridden and stunk. It reeked. Exactly what was needed yesterday was not what was required for tomorrow. Okay? It was a daily coming to God's provision that was required. It was, I need the bread of God every day. That's good. Okay? Now, I'm sure that we could stretch that analogy too far, but I don't think it's out of the stretch for us to say this morning, we, we, can, we can treat our spiritual walk with God a bit like we're junkies. Like, shoot up on God today, and that's going to get us through until the next time. Like, get our spiritual high today, and if that can make me stretch 
Yeah, and then maybe I can get enough of him next week, or maybe I can do it at a conference. For those of you at men's conference, come along, it'll be fantastic. Um, I've always enjoyed going to men's conference. I come home from it on a bit of a spiritual high. You've experienced that? Maybe if you're a woman here, you haven't done that at men's conference, but if you've been to a, a, like a really great you know, conference, or may, maybe it was just like a, a brilliant Sunday morning that we gathered together as a church. Let's be honest, some Sunday mornings you get here and you're just like, man, that was awesome. And other Sundays you can just go, it was pretty good. It was all right. You know, it changes from week to week. Um, and that's no reflection on the talents or the skills. It's just often a reflection of our own hearts, if anything. But, but you go to a, a really great experience, like a conference or a church service or, or something, a prayer night or something that just sort of like, man, you walk out buzzing. I'm on fire for Jesus. And then you start thinking, I can't wait for the next conference. I can't wait for the next men's camp or the next ladies retreat. Or I can't wait for the next special prayer night. And we think that having one meal every few months will sustain us. It won't. Every day, God says, come back and get your bread. I'm the one who gives it. Every day. Come out in the morning. All right? If there's ever an argument for getting into the Word of God first thing in the morning, this is it. Come out every morning. Just taste and see that the Lord is good. All right? It's like fine pastries baked with honey. Um, Jesus supplies us, yes. God is our provider. But the thing I think to take out of this is that he just provides what is needed for today. He provides what's needed for today. He doesn't want us to be spending too much time consumed with what we think we will need tomorrow. In fact, that's what Jesus told his disciples. Don't worry about tomorrow. He said, in fact, tomorrow has enough worries for itself. There'll be a whole stockpile of, of worry that you'll find tomorrow. All right? So don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough worries for itself. But just come to me. Just come to me. God is the provider, yes. But he's also the provider of just what is required for now. So there's the, the backstory, as it were, to bread. Bread in the desert. God providing. Every day. Come out, gather it, except the, the seventh day, right? I see myself in the people of Israel so much. God says, you need to come every day. And some people went, nah. I'll do it every second day. And of course, their, their bread stunk and got maggots in it. And then on the sixth day, God said to them, all right, today you're allowed to gather two days' worth. I don't want you to go out tomorrow and collect. All right, that day is a holy day set apart for me. Don't go out and do that. Just trust me. I'll provide for you. That's what the Sabbath is all about, actually. It's about trusting God for his provision, even when we don't work. And of course, some people, it says, on the seventh day, they got up and went, we're going anyway. We're going to go out and get our bread today. I love freshly cooked bread in the morning. And they got out there, nothing. No frost on the ground. No manna spread out before them. God provides what we need 
and when we need it on his agenda and his timetable and not ours. All right, let's fast forward hundreds of years and we'll jump into the New Testament for a moment. And we're going to come across an interaction between some of these Israelites, these Jewish people, as they were discussing and talking with Jesus in the New Testament. And we get this beautiful statement that Jesus makes, and some of you might be familiar with it, where Jesus says, hey, listen, I am the bread of life. You remember that statement that Jesus made? So we're going to read a bit about that. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And we'll read from verse 30. And, and here are the, the crowds of people that are gathering around Jesus. And they're pushing back a little bit on some of the claims that Jesus has made about himself. Or at least what they, they thought was happening. And so they asked Jesus in verse 30 of John chapter 6, What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? Now just think about that question for a moment. These people had been traveling around, whole crowds. In fact, some of the New Testament says all of Israel went out to see him. There were massive amounts of people and Jesus was doing incredible things, right? Miracles. He was making the lame people stand and walk. He was giving sight to the blind, speech to the mute. He was raising the dead. And some people went, nah, can you give us a sign? Can you, can you do something special so that we may see it and believe you? Which gives us a really important little take here. Um, you remember the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man had plenty to eat, plenty of bread. Lazarus was a poor beggar, had nothing just survived off what fell on the floor and he used to sit near the table where the rich man ate and gather up the crumbs. The rich man never gave him anything, didn't care for him at all and eventually Jesus tells the story that both those men died. The rich man and Lazarus died. The rich man, he said, went to um, the fiery furnace, Sheol, Jesus calls it. And Lazarus, the, the poor man, went to heaven or... Abram's bosom, as the old people would call it. And, um, and from that location, the rich man sees that there's a great divide, a great gulf, and he's in torment, and he's asking, hey, can, can Lazarus come and even just dip some water and put it on my tongue? And God says, oh, you, you, you can't. No one can go from here to here. No one can cross that divide. And, um, and he says, well, if I can't be freed from this torment... Can I please at least go back to warn my brothers? Can you please raise me from the dead and go back to warn my brothers, even if I have to come back here, not to live the sort of life that I lived? And God makes a really important point about it. He says to him, even if someone rises from the dead, they still won't believe. Just like Jesus was about to do. They still won't believe. And here are these people. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. 
What are you going to perform? Now, not long before this, Jesus had actually taken a little loaf of bread, remember? Prayed over it. And, and it went to everybody. At least 500, possibly far more than that. And he fed them bread. What are you going to perform? Now, here's the comparison that these people draw with Jesus. Verse 31, John 6. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. All right, hear their complaint? You need to perform something. You need to do something to prove that you're God. And the proof that they wanted is the proof that we've just been talking about, manna in the desert. Give us bread from heaven. What you're doing is not good enough. You haven't proved yourself enough. We need manna. Give us manna. Verse 32. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. And that's what the people were saying. Are you, like, are, you, are you better than Moses? Who are you? Moses gave us bread when we needed it. Jesus reminds them, hey, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who came, comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said, sir, give us this bread always, right? This is a bit like the Israelites who said, oh, I'm just going to go and collect once and then I won't have to go out tomorrow. Just give us this bread and then, and then we'll be happy. Verse 35. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. God is our provider. We, we saw that in the story of the manna. And he provides just what we need. Just what we need. No more and no less. And now here is Jesus, and he points around to the crowd that are still looking for God to do some type of show. Perform something, they say. And don't don't we do that to God sometimes? Don't, don't we look at God and just say, well, God, you, you need to perform. You need to do something, right? You need to prove yourself into this situation. You need to meet me in this. You need to... Jesus says to them, hey, listen, maybe you're looking in all the wrong places. It wasn't Moses that gave you the bread. It's God. Are you looking to him as being your supplier, your provider? And then Jesus points to himself and he says, it's me you're looking for. I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. If you eat from me, you're not going to hunger. If you believe in me, you're not going to thirst. So just as we saw that Jesus is our provider, God is our provider, and that he provides just what we need, Jesus is saying, I'm what you need, right? Not, not my performances, not my miracles. 
Not what I can do for you, not the blessings. Are we just content to be satisfied with Jesus? If I've got you, Jesus, that's enough. And that's what he's looking for. There's a couple more references in the New Testament to manna, which I find quite interesting. In Hebrews, we've heard about Hebrews a little bit this morning, Hebrews chapter 9, there's a passage that manna is um, referenced in. Hebrews chapter 9, starting from verse 1. The writer of the Hebrews, he knew a lot about the history of Israel. And so he's recalling some of it. And he says, now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle to set up. And in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the stable and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides in which, so inside of that, was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that had budded and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in details right now. With these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time, during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshipper's conscience. They're physical regulations and only deal with food, drink and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. But Christ has appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. It's interesting, isn't it, that in that passage, that the physical manner that we read about all the way back in Exodus... The physical manna that they gathered up that day and they all ate from. Remember Moses said to them, hey, listen, gather up one and a half litres of it, chuck it in a pot, and we'll put that inside, inside the, the tabernacle box, right? With the ark. And, and that was kept. That little jar of God's provision, God's bread, the bread of heaven, was kept. And it was kept in the most holy place, the place where you can only enter by the blood of bulls, of goats, of calves. That physical manner was hidden in the most holy place. But we can see that Jesus gave us a picture say, listen, I'm the bread of heaven. I'm the bread of heaven. Right? Jesus was even saying, listen, I'm your great high priest, the one who sits in the most holy place. I'm the one who can enter it, not by the blood of bulls and calves, but by my own sacrifice. He has entered the most holy place for us. 
Right? He's made a way for us to enter into that intimate relationship and communion with God. And He has done that without any fear of judgment on our behalf. Because we are resting to Him, looking to Him, feasting on Him. He is our bread. Now, we're going to finish. And we're going to finish in the book of Revelation. Just one verse. No big reading this time. There were a bunch of letters that were written to seven churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation. One of those is a letter to the church in Pergamum. Revelation chapter 2, just the one verse we're going to read, verse 17. Jesus is saying now to that church, and by the Spirit he says to us today as well. Revelation 2.17, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. All right. Jesus offers the reward to those who conquer, he said, to those who endure, to those who are there, to those who have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus, Jesus offers the reward of himself to those who have pursued him, to those who have followed after him. All right? This reference, I think, to hidden manna is probably an, an echo of the idea of the manna that was hidden away in the ark and kept there and secured and preserved. But I think it's also a foreshadow of the fact that we are looking forward to, in the end times, this great marriage supper of the Lamb, a great messianic feast where we sit down with Jesus in full communion, just like, well, just like our forefathers did, just like Adam did, just like Eve did, who in the garden sat and communed and walked and ate with their God. And one day that will happen again for those who know Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, for those people, you'll get to enjoy some of the hidden manna, the, the true bread of heaven. We will get to enjoy Jesus. He will be our sustainer and our provider for all eternity. We will sit and eat together at this great marriage supper of the Lamb where the bride and the groom are finally reunited. And he says, let's break bread together. Let's eat together. What a beautiful picture. We're going to do that now um, as we close off our service. I'm going to invite you to come forward. And I think, are you going to sing one song? Are we doing that? Or? There, there'll be some music playing in the background. But as we're doing that, I want you to come forward. And, and we're just going to take... Unfortunately, I don't have freshly cooked bread for you this morning. You know, just for those of you who like to be free of gluten. Um, we've got bread, crackers. It doesn't really matter what the symbol is here. Rice crackers. We've got a cup. We're going to take the bread, the same bread that Jesus sat really with his disciples that night before he died. And he said, let's break bread together. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it and remember me. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take some of the bread and the juice and we're simply going to come and say, Jesus, 
we look to you. We remember you. We worship you. If you know Jesus this morning, then I invite you to come to the table.